Well, I want to show you a picture of a very special place. This is, uh, let's see here. There, oh, there it is. This is the very special place. Now, you may say, Tim, that is just a slightly blurry, blurry picture of some very ordinary steps. But no, this is an incredibly special place because this is the spot where 47 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus and put my faith in him. <clears throat> These steps are attached to a cabin in a Christian camp in Sonoma County called Alliance Redwoods. Uh, my grandparents built this cabin, and my parents and I stayed there in uh, the summer of 1990, uh, 1976 for a week when my parents were the missionary speakers at a family camp. And as I went to the kids' program that was a part of that camp, one morning I heard the teacher uh, talk about John 3.16 and give a very simple presentation of the gospel. That afternoon, back at the cabin, I asked my dad some questions about what she had said, and he explained things more fully, and there on those steps, my dad helped me pray to accept Jesus and give my life to him. So these may look like ordinary steps, but they're actually an incredibly special place for me, a sacred place for me. Uh, these steps have actually been a place of pilgrimage in my life. On several occasions, I've been at events that were at this camp or nearby, and I've made a point of going to that cabin and standing there and just reflecting on what happened in that moment 47 years ago. Uh, these are ordinary steps, but for me, they're very special. Isn't that interesting how otherwise ordinary things can take on extraordinary significance in our lives? And this has happened for you, maybe not with cabin steps, but with something else. You know, it, what may look to others like just an ordinary ticket stub is a reminder to you of that first date you went on with the person who became your spouse. It's just a baseball on a shelf, but for you it's a reminder of that game your dad took you to and how much he loved baseball and how that was a thing that connected you. It may just be an ordinary date on the calendar to most people, but to you it's special because it's your birthday or your anniversary, or the birthday of someone you love. Ordinary things can be imbued with extraordinary significance. That's a big part of what we're going to consider as we come to God's Word today. We're continuing on in our series in Exodus called People of the Presence, and we're looking at some chapters towards the end of the book where God gives his people instructions through Moses to construct the tabernacle. That's in chapters 25 through 31. And then the people build the tabernacle. Everything's basically repeated in chapters 35 through 40. Now, the specific passages from Exodus I'm going to be drawing on today are Exodus 29, 1 through 19, Exodus 30, 17 through 21, and Exodus 38, 1 through 20. But I'm not going to read all those for you because it would take a long time. And all of these passages are giving dimensions of spaces and objects there's a lot of lists. It's a little repetitive. It'd be, it, so we'll listen to a few of these verses in a bit, but I'm not going to read all of them for you. But all of uh, these verses are part of this description of the tabernacle that God told his people to build. The tabernacle was a portable place of worship that the people used as they were moving around from place to place in the wilderness. And then they also used it even once there in the promised land uh, before Solomon built the temple uh, to the Lord. The tabernacle had three parts to it. 
the largest outermost part was called the courtyard, and that's what we're going to be especially considering today. Now, as we did last week when we talked about priests, I want us to see what the courtyard was, how it functioned, and how the items within it functioned in the context of the tabernacle and how the people worship God then. But then I also want to see some principles that are demonstrated by the courtyard and what's in it and see how those principles apply to us today. So we're going to start in the tabernacle back then, but we're going to bring things forward into our lives today and in our relationship with God. The, uh, the courtyard is described for us in Exodus 29, verses 9 through 19. And uh, I'm gonna, I want us to see a video where you'll hear this passage read, and you'll also see what it's describing. So let's see how this goes. Okay, so you can see why I didn't read all those sections. It's a, it gets a little repetitive there. But I thought it was cool that this guy put it together so you could actually see what's being described. So uh, a cubit, by the way, is 18 inches. So the courtyard was 150 feet long, 75 feet across. And then the, those curtain walls were seven and a half feet high. And um, you can, in the, uh, what was the uh, eastern half of the courtyard, there's an altar and a basin, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. And then on the western half, there was that, what, what's the tabernacle proper, that rectangular tent there. The whole complex was called the tabernacle, but it's specifically this rectangular tent that was uh, 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. Here, I'll show you a, another view. There you go. And so that uh, the tabernacle was divided into two parts. The priests would go in from the courtyard into the holy place that was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide. And then from there, once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place, which was a cube 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, 15 feet tall. And, and, and this was the place where the people would meet with God, where they would worship him. And as the people traveled around in the wilderness from spot to spot, the Lord would go ahead of them and tell them where they were going to camp, where their next stopping point would be. And when the Lord indicated where they should stop, the priests would set up the tabernacle with the most holy place and the holy place. And then they would unpack the curtains, the poles, the posts, the bases, the pegs, the, the ropes, everything it took to set up the, tabern the courtyard. They would set that up. They would locate all the furnishings in their proper places in the courtyard and the tabernacle. And once they had done that, what had been an otherwise ordinary piece of ground in the Sinai wilderness now had become the dwelling place of God. It had become the place where the Israelites could worship the Lord. This ordinary ground became extraordinary when it was set apart for God in this way. We see ordinary things becoming extraordinary, not just with the ground that the tabernacle was on, but with a lot of the furnishings that were in it. When God gave these instructions to Moses of how he was to build the tabernacle, the Lord included religious elements that were very common in the cultures around Israel. For example, we have archaeological evidence of uh, pagan altars and incense altars that followed the same plan as the altars that God told Moses to build. They look very similar. Even the idea of uh, animal sacrifices or incense being offered in worship was a very familiar concept in the pagan religions around Israel. That there would be priests who would be mediators between God or the gods and people was a familiar concept. So God was taking these common elements, he was including these familiar religious items and elements in the tabernacle, but he was giving them a holy purpose and meaning. 
Because now these are being set apart to worship him, the true God, rather than false pagan gods. And God also makes some distinctions in how they were to be used. Now we saw last week with the priests. Priests of the Lord did not carry out their duties the same way that pagan priests did. Uh, the Lord gives a different meaning to sacrifices than what they meant in pagan contexts. And so the Lord is taking what's familiar, but he's giving it a new, special, holy, sacred meaning. This is even true with the layout of the tabernacle. To have these kind of three spaces, the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place, that was a familiar layout for religious spaces in the ancient Near East. That you'd have a place where you'd come with your sacrifices, that then there'd be an inner priest-only chamber, and then an innermost sanctum where the god lived. This is a, a common layout. Of course, in all the pagan temples, where the god lived was meant there's just a statue of a god in the inner room. Of course, for the tabernacle, in that inner sanctum was the actual manifest glorious presence of the Lord. But still, there's a familiar layout now set apart for something special and extraordinary. This three-part layout we not only see in cultures around Israel, but we've seen it modeled in a few ways already in Genesis and Exodus. Even at Mount Sinai, for example, as God met with the people, uh, he, his presence came and touched the top of Mount Sinai. That's where his manifest presence was. That's where heaven was intersecting with earth. And there was, at the base of the mountain, the people had to stay a certain distance away. And then Moses and the elders went partway up the mountain. And then only Moses went all the way up to the top to be in God's presence. So again, everyone at the bottom, and then some a little closer, and then one all the way. The same sort of layout we see even in the first chapters of the Bible in Genesis. Uh, in Genesis 2, and it's describing the Garden of Eden. It says, God created the land, and in the center of the land, he planted a garden. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life. And there in the garden is where the Lord came and met with Adam and Eve. That's where he was present in a tangible way. That's where heaven was intersecting earth. And there's other parallels between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. Uh, in uh, Exodus 25 through 31, as God's giving the instructions for constructing the tabernacle, seven times we see the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. The first six times are concerned with the construction of the tabernacle. The seventh is an instruction about the Sabbath day. So the Lord speaking seven times, six concerned with making something, and the seventh for the Sabbath. That's a purposeful echo of the creation account in Genesis 1. Uh, we'll look more at this next week, but in the holy place there was a lampstand, and it was fashioned to be like a stylized tree probably representing the tree of life that was in the center of the Garden of Eden. Uh, when you look closely at the description of the curtains that made up the walls of the most holy place, there are cherubim worked into those. And of course, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, between the wings of the cherubim is where the glorious presence of God resided. Cherubim were heavenly hybrid creatures, and they're mentioned not just here in the tabernacle, but they're mentioned in conjunction with Eden at the end of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden, they were put there to work and keep it. Those are the same verbs used to describe the priest's duties in the tabernacle. So we see all these parallels between Eden and the tabernacle. Uh, reflecting on these parallels, one scholar said this, In the midst of a fallen world, in exile from the Garden of Eden, the original heaven on earth, God undertakes another act of creation, 
a building project that is nothing less than a return to pre-fall splendor. The tabernacle is a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. The tabernacle is a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. And what made that ground holy was the fact that it had been set apart, dedicated, consecrated to God. They, had, they were purposeful about making this space, even defining it with the walls of the courtyard, that this is a place where God would come. There wasn't anything inherently holy about the ground. It was just another patch of ground in the wilderness. But when the tabernacle was erected there, it is now set apart for God. It was now holy ground. See, the, the tabernacle and the courtyard even remind us that what's common becomes holy when it's consecrated to God. What's common becomes holy when it's consecrated to God. And that, ha- that definitely applies to you and me. How we become holy, a big part of that is our consecration to God, being set apart, dedicated to Him. We've seen over the last couple of weeks how we are the temple, the tabernacle of God's presence. That's part of our identity. We become that place where heaven intersects earth when, when, because God's presence, His Holy Spirit, is in us. We are outposts of Eden. We are glimpses of holiness in a world that's lost its way. We are meant to be pictures of goodness in a not-so-good world, to be pictures of order in a disordered world, to be pictures of peace in an unpeaceful world. This is part of what it would mean to be tabernacles of God's presence. We see that as part of our identity, but many of us would say, that's great, but I'm pretty ordinary and common. I don't, like, how do I, how do I become that? How do I become an outpost of Eden in this fallen world? A big part of the answer to that is our consecration, being set apart to God. Because what's common becomes holy when it's consecrated to God. Even our common, ordinary lives become holy when it's consecrated to God. That's how we live out our identity as his tabernacle. How does that consecration happen? Well, uh, the items that are in the courtyard actually point us in that direction. There were two items that were in the courtyard. Uh, one was an altar. This is an altar that was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with bronze. It was seven and a half feet square, four and a half feet tall. Had to be big enough that you would you know, be able to burn an entire bull in it. That was the largest animal that would be sacrificed. And uh, it was positioned in uh, probably the center of the eastern half of the courtyard. So about 35 feet in from the entrance, there would be the altar. It was hollow, and you can see it had poles and rings there so it could be carried uh, from place to place as the Israels moved around. The point of the altar was to be able to offer sacrifices. Now, these sacrifices aren't mentioned in detail in Exodus, but there were five kinds of sacrifices. One was a grain sacrifice, unleavened bread or grain that would be offered. The other four were all animal sacrifices. One was a free will or fellowship offering that expressed thanks to God, and that was the one that if you brought it, you could eat part of it. Then there was a whole burnt offering. That's where the entire animal was consumed. That was a sign of dedication of a person or of people to the Lord. And the idea was just as the animal is totally consumed, the person would be totally dedicated to God. Then the other two sacrifices dealt with sin 
and guilt. And uh, a big chunk of the book of Leviticus has to do with talking about these sacrifices and how they were offered and what kind of animals should be offered depending on what the occasion was and what type of sacrifice and who was bringing it. All that's spelled out in great detail, but all of that happened on this altar. This altar was essential for the people to be able to worship the Lord, for them to be able to thank him, to express their dedication to him, for their sins to be covered and their guilt removed. This altar was a necessary part of that through the sacrifices that were offered on it. The other item that was in the courtyard was a bronze basin with a, that was on a bronze stand. Now, uh, we're not given a detailed description of this. We're not even given the dimensions of it. Interestingly, we are told where the material for it came from. In chapter 38, when it's talking about the construction of all of this, in verse 8 it says, And the bronze for this basin came from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was a way of talking about that tabernacle proper, the entrance to the the holy place. And this is historically accurate that at this time period, mirrors were not made of silvered glass but of polished bronze. We have uh, evidence of that from Egypt, for example. And so these women had given their mirrors so that this basin could be made. And I I love that little reminder, even just kind of in that passing reference, that the courtyard was not a male-only district. That women were there and not just there but serving. Even if we're not entirely sure what that serving entailed, they were there and serving. So we're told what this is made out of. We're told where it was positioned. It was between the altar and the entrance to the, to the uh, tent of meeting, to the holy place there. And we're also told the purpose for it. This basin was for the priests to use to wash their hands and feet as they would prepare to minister to the Lord. Either going into the holy place or approaching the altar to make a sacrifice. And it made sense that there would be a way for them to wash because the priest got dirty and maybe a little gross just in the execution of the duties of their job. A big part of what the priest did dealt with an altar that had a fire burning in it. So they're dealing with ashes and soot. And a big part of what they did was slaughtering and butchering animals. So there was a lot of blood involved I'm going to guess a bit of poop as well. And so when the priest would kind of minister to the Lord, it was appropriate for them to stop and to wash off that stuff that had gotten on them. It was a sign of their dedication, their consecration to the Lord, a sign of preparing themselves to minister to the Lord in this way. Now, we aren't washing in bronze basins We aren't slaughtering and burning animals as part of our worship. But the principles that the altar and the basin point to absolutely do apply to us. They remind us of what it means for us to be consecrated. See, for us to be consecrated, it absolutely matters that our sin is forgiven and our guilt is removed. Now, I'm so glad this doesn't happen on a bronze altar with lambs and goats and bulls being slaughtered and burned. Remember we saw last week that Jesus gave himself as the once for all final sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus has provided through his work on the cross this forgiveness for us. It's for us though to access that, to appropriate it in our lives so that we can be forgiven, so that our guilt can be removed. We often think about this in relation to our initial coming to faith of of getting saved And it really does matter that we have that moment where we admit that we've sinned. 
we've done things that are wrong as God defines what's right and wrong. And we acknowledge that we cannot compensate for our sin. There's no good deeds good enough that can outweigh the sin that we've done. There's no effort strong enough that can overcome the guilt that we've incurred. And so it matters that we come to God and say, based on the work of Jesus on the cross, I'm asking you to forgive me and cleanse me. Take that guilt away. Forgive me. And in that moment, God answers that prayer. He does that. And even more profound things happen. The Bible says that in that moment that we become a part of God's family, that we cross over from death to life, uh, that we become a new creation, that that we are born again. I know that a lot of us have had that moment in our lives. Let me say, if you haven't, today can be your day to experience that. All of those things can be true of you before you leave here today. But even once we experience that amazing moment of transformation and forgiveness, there's still a need for forgiveness in our lives as time goes on. In that moment of salvation, our identity changes, that we are no longer sinners, we are now saints. We are those who are holy. But even though we're saints, we're saints who still get tempted and occasionally give in to temptation and sin. And when that happens, and the Holy Spirit brings that conviction, then we want to go to God and say, oh Lord, I I blew it, I did this, it was wrong, please forgive me. And he forgives us, he cleanses us, he takes away that guilt. A part of our process of sanctification, of becoming more holy over time, is keeping short accounts with God, to quickly respond when he brings something to our attention, to be quick to confess and repent and ask for forgiveness. Also, hopefully over time, we're becoming more holy in our actions, not just declared holy, but actually living holy. And so ideally, there's less need to ask for forgiveness, but when we need to, we can. And again, not by bringing an animal to an altar, but by coming again to Jesus and saying, would you forgive me? So uh, it's absolutely necessary for us to be consecrated, for our sins to be forgiven, and for our guilt to be removed. Another part of consecration includes this idea of dedication to God. You know, the the central idea behind consecration, sanctification, holiness is the idea of being set apart. And so it's good for us to consider if we've made a total dedication of ourselves to the Lord. Uh, Just as those whole burnt offerings would be offered and every part of the animal would be consumed, we're meant to give every part of our life to God to be dedicated to him. You know, in in my life, I've noticed there's a difference between saying, God, I give you my whole life and saying, God, I give you every part of my life. I mean it when I say give you my whole life. I, I mean all of it in total, but it helps me to list some of the parts of my life that I'm giving to him. Lord, I give you my thoughts and my past and my emotions and my relationships, and my sexuality, and my finances, and everything else that is a part of what makes me, me, I give to you, surrender to you. You know, if you think of your life like a house, it's it's not just that you sign the title deed over and hand God the keys to the front door. You want to make sure that there's no cupboards or closets that are still locked, that he doesn't have access to. You want to give him full access. What would it have been like for the Israelites to set up 80% of the courtyard? 
you know, it would have been incomplete if they would have like not put one of the pieces of furnish, furnishings where it was supposed to go. The tabernacle wouldn't have really been the tabernacle. It had to be complete. And so we want to fully dedicate, consecrate ourselves to the Lord. You know, I, I would encourage you, if you've never done this or if it's been a while since you've done this, to make an appointment with God sometime later today or in the next couple days and just pray this through. Lord, I give you my whole life and specifically, I give you all these parts. You might want to use language like, I give this to you. I surrender to you. And also invite him to come and fill those parts of your life. I give you my thoughts. Come and fill my thoughts with your presence. I give you all my relationships. Come and fill every relationship with your presence. I surrender my emotions to you. Come and fill my emotions with your Holy Spirit. And on you go. Do that for as many parts of you as you can think of. And then ask God what you missed. And he'll remind you and then surrender those and invite him into those areas as well. Uh, I, I'm telling you, this can be a powerful moment with the Lord as we ensure that we are fully dedicated to him. The altar reminds us of the need for our sins to be forgiven and our guilt removed and for us to be fully, totally dedicated to the Lord. The, the bronze uh, basin reminds us of our need for ongoing cleansing. Just as the priests needed to get cleansed from the muck and mess that they accumulated just in the course of going about their duties, we need to be cleansed from the muck and mess that sticks onto us from this world. You know, the priests, it was not sinful for them to be dirty or sooty or bloody or to have stepped in some animal droppings in the course of going about their duties. It wasn't morally wrong for them to be dirty. It just was inappropriate to take that into God's presence. It was meaningful for them to be able to wash, to say, no, but I care about coming before the Lord. I want to make sure there's no, nothing on me that shouldn't be there as I come before the Lord to minister to him. Yeah, I think there are things in our lives that aren't necessarily sin, but that we need to let go of in order to be able to come before the Lord and be totally focused on him, to be consecrated to him. You know, these could be things that are just like uh, distractions in our lives. You know, we, there's, uh, we have so many options of entertainment, what we're going to look at and what we can focus on. Not, a lot of that isn't sinful, it just could be a distraction when we're trying to focus on the Lord. We, there's stresses and concerns that we experience in life. It's not sinful to be stressed or concerned, but if that becomes a distraction from the Lord, us focusing on the Lord, then it's something we'd have to deal with. You know, technology is a great gift, but our phones can be a distraction with their constant alerts and notifications from focusing on the Lord. There are some things that we've got to figure out how to set aside so that we can be set apart to God. Not because they're morally wrong in and of themselves, but because they become a distraction. Now, I think it'd be good for us to put some checkpoints in our life to make sure there's none of these things hanging on to us that we need to wash off. You know, like when you come to a devotional time with the Lord, it's normal to come in a little distracted. It's normal to have to settle yourself and focus in. But, if, but when you have thoughts that come to mind, you know, a plot line from the book you're reading, uh, something from the TV show you're watching, uh, a concern, a stress that, that's on your mind, to purposely set that aside. If you want to picture yourself washing it off, say, okay, Lord, that's not a bad thing, but I don't want it to distract me from you in this moment. 
Another checkpoint could be uh, in the evenings as you're finishing your day, just to reflect on your day and, and just if there's anything that's kind of sticking in your head that's there as a distraction, say, Lord, I just wash that off. I just give that to you. I want to go into my night of sleep uh, focused on you. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set that aside. You know, the priests, when they had washed in the basin, they didn't do it every time they were sooty or bloody. They did it at some specific times before they were going to minister to the Lord. So having these specific times we think about can be helpful. You might even do it on a weekly rhythm as you think about coming to church. Saturday night, Sunday morning, take a few minutes. God, I don't want to be distracted by anything as I come into this time of worship. I, you know, if there's any sin, highlight that so I can confess that and be cleansed of that. If there's just any distractions, Lord, I just want to set those aside so that I can be set apart to you in this time. So some of the things that we uh, need to just have washed off of us could just be distractions. There's other things that would be more like burdens that we need to set aside. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race to mark out for us. Notice that not everything that hinders us is a sin. There's things that hinder and sin, separate categories. There are things that are weighing us down. Um, Debbie, I do want you to share that word, if you would. Um, not knowing that I was preaching on this, uh, Debbie said, I think I've got a word, and uh, it feels like it fits. So would you mind just sharing that? Yep. Come all the way up here. Do you do have to, yes. Good morning. Okay, this is from last December. Um, and bear with me. I'm going to bring in a TV sh movie real quick. Okay. So the parent trap is classic and there's new. There's a part of the storyline where they're going on a hike up to uh, a lake, and the woman who he's about to marry is hiking, which she does not want to do and hates. And he's got two kids, and they're imps, actually. Yeah. So as she's hiking... They're adding rocks to her backpack. But she, not having a clue, keeps getting more worn down, more worn down, more worn down. She's like, oh, I just can't. I just can't do it. And I was thinking, I had the thought, what about your backpack? Ooh, ooh, ouch. Sometimes we still carry heavy burdens that we don't know that are there. I see as long as we're on this journey, we must be able to carry what God gives us to carry. Not our yoke. Not our backpack. But his backpack. Excuse me. Some of our backpacks are filled with rocks we've put in from decades of sorrows. Decades of sorrows could be last week, but decades of sorrows, of griefs, of loss, of anything unresolved, wrongs done to us. How about the wrongs we've done to others and the guilt and shame? What are we to do with those rocks? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Sometimes we can just take that backpack off and hurl that as far as we can because the Lord lets us do that. And it's like, hallelujah, done. Right? I like those times. <laughs> There's other times where he has us take one rock out at a time. And he makes us face it. And he makes us deal with it. I don't care if it's yesterday, months ago, year, it's generally years ago. There's usually things we just do and we carry and we go on. And he makes us deal with that. And before long, they crumble. And they lose their power. But it's, a, it's what we have to do before him. God, come into the rock. Yeah. Come into the grief. Come into the loss. Come into the sorrow. Come into my failure. Come into the things that I've carried for generation upon generation. Even what I've done yesterday, right? There's also the sweet thing that he does. He allows us to take those rocks and build that memorial. And go, I remember. Oh, yeah. I remember. I remember. And we can look and go, look at what God did. Look at what God alone did. There's one more part, and I'm done. Okay. Another movie. I'm sorry. I'm not a freak. <laughs> I hardly watch TV. It's in my memory bank. Okay. Uh, Forrest Gump, there's a great part of this movie where his love, Jenny, Forrest Gump's love, Jenny, she comes back to her childhood home after growing up and her life has been a mess because of sin. And she goes to her old house that she grew up in that's going to be torn down. And her and Forrest are looking at the house. And she begins to pick up the stack of rocks. And she is hurling him at those rock at that house, just one at a time, and then begins to scream and cry, and she's sorrowful, and then she falls to the ground because the memory's there of abuse. And he says, sometimes there's just not enough rocks <laughs> because only Jesus can change our hearts, Right? But we can't pretend to not have a burden that we're carrying. So I just pray today that we will present to him that backpack and ask him what do you want to do with it and then ask him for his burden, right? So we can go forward. That's right. Is that fit? That fits. Thank you. That fits. Yeah, yeah. We're done. <laughs> You know, some of the things that are in our backpack are things that we've done, that there's elements of sin there that we've got to confess and receive forgiveness for. We could even see that maybe there's been sinful responses to things that have happened in our life that we have to confess. But so much of what's in the backpack that's weighing us down isn't sin. It's just stuff that's been done to us as a part of being in this messy, mucky world. And, you know, I, so there's forgiveness for the things we need to be forgiven for. 
there's also freedom for the things we need to be set free from and healing for the things we need to be healed from. And part of our ongoing process of sanctification is facing some of those rocks of unforgiveness, of wounds that have been done to us, of stuff from our family of origin, of identity lies we've believed, and finding that there is freedom, that those don't have to be hindrances and weights for us anymore, that, 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 that we can renounce those identity lies and walk in the truth of who we are as beloved children of God, that we can receive healing in our memories and thoughts and emotions for the wounds that were done to us, that we can forgive and not be uh, weighed down by bitterness and resentment, that we can hold on to what's good from our family legacy, but leave behind everything bad and dysfunctional and abusive. And we can, if you want to use the image of the backpack in Hebrews 12.1, we can throw off those things that hinder. If you want to use the imagery of the tabernacle, we can wash off the muck that's accumulated in that basin that we can be free of that. See, when that stuff is on us, it's weighing us down, you can also think of it as clutter in our souls, that it's harder for us to experience the fullness of the presence of God in us when we've got that stuff cluttering up. As we get rid of this, as it gets removed, it gets it's washed off, there's more room for the presence of God to come fill for us to experience that and be his tabernacle, to be consecrated to him. That's how our lives can become a place where heaven intersects earth. That's how we can live out our identity as a dwelling place of God. That's how we can become holy. The tabernacle reminds us, even the courtyard reminds us that what's common becomes holy when it's consecrated to God. And yes, that was true for a patch of land in the wilderness 3,400 years ago, and it's absolutely true in your life and in mine today. Now, a lot of us probably don't need reminders that in ourselves were common and ordinary. Maybe there's some narcissists that need that reminder. You're really not that awesome. Uh, maybe there's some folks that have adopted bravado as a coping mechanism for insecurity and you've begun to believe your own press. Okay, you're common, you're ordinary. Most of us don't need that reminder. We feel it, we get it. And, and we see, see this and go, I, this is not me. I'm not an outpost of Eden in this world. But that's why consecration matters. That's how we become that glimpse of what's good in a not good world. That's how our lives become holy ground amidst a world that has lost its way, by consecrating ourselves to God. So folks, what's, how's your consecration doing today? How's your set-apartness to God? And what would it look like to take a step deeper into that? Maybe some of us need to receive forgiveness today. Maybe for the very first time, uh, all that I just described, that can be true of you today. Talk to me, talk to one of our prayer team members before you go. We'd love to help you take that step. Uh, just as my dad helped me on those stairs uh, those years ago, we'd love to help you take that similar step to say that yes to God and the forgiveness and the freedom from guilt that he offers. Maybe some of us need to be forgiven again. God's bringing something to mind and we realize I haven't dealt with that, I haven't confessed that. It's wrong and I haven't admitted that before the Lord. Today, confess that, ask for his forgiveness. You can leave here forgiven and free from guilt for that. Maybe some of us need to do an examination of our dedication to God and just say, Lord, I, I want all of me to be given to you. I want all of me to be filled with you. So I'm going to make sure that my dedication is total and complete. Maybe some of us just realize, I've got to unpack a backpack. I've got to get rid of some stuff. I've got I've to get some stuff washed off me. 
We can do that in our minds before the Lord. We can have others join us in working through that and praying. Kind of depends the level of what it is we're, we're dealing with. But that can happen. And as we do this, we're consecrated to the Lord. We become those holy places where he dwells. I want to give you a moment just to ponder this before the Lord and think about what your response would be. So you can just bow your heads if you want. I just create a moment between us, us and the Lord. I invite the worship team to come back as well so that we can worship together as we close the service. But just give you a moment now to listen to the Lord, to ponder your consecration to him, and respond as he would have you respond. God, as we reflect on the imagery of the tabernacle, how it operated, what it meant, uh, we, we see that when it was set up, then your presence filled it. So Lord, as we are consecrating ourselves this morning, as we are taking these steps to set ourselves, up, set ourselves apart to you, we're praying that as we're consecrated now that you would fill us with your presence, that you would come Holy Spirit so that we could be tabernacles of your presence, that we could represent you really well in the world around us. Lord, may we live fully dedicated, consecrated to you. In your name we pray, amen. Bless you as we go from this place. Chapel family, I bless you in the powerful name of Jesus. And I, I, I bless you with, I would confer upon you all that we've just sung about. That you have forgiveness because of Jesus. That you have healing because of Jesus. Healing, yes, that gets applied to our bodies and we're so grateful for that when that happens. But healing for your heart, for your soul, for your mind, for your emotions, healing for your past, and hope for your future because of Jesus. That we, you have victory because of Jesus. Victory in this life and the security of victory forever in eternity. You have life because of Jesus. And I bless you with life today in the powerful name of Jesus. Friends, as we go from this place, we are blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 God bless you.